The following message is from Bear Creek Church. More information about BCC is available at bearcreekchurch.org. Well, go ahead and open your Bibles to Acts chapter 9. You'll want your Bibles especially, you want them every Sunday, but especially this Sunday as uh, no, no screen, no slides, so you'd be following along there. It's been a few weeks since we've looked at Saul's conversion, and because this is such a, it's a gigantic, it's a hugely significant event, I want to read back through these first 19 verses and, and then look at them from a slightly different angle than we did a few weeks ago. Uh, but before we do so, uh, please join me in prayer. Almighty God, loving and gracious Father, We praise you for your glorious grace to us in Jesus. Thank you for your spirit who sovereignly chose to confront us with our sin and open our eyes to your kingdom and glory in the one and only Savior, Jesus Christ. And as your servants, we pray that you would use us for your glory. Help us to continually see you and rightly respond with hearts Hearts like that of Jesus, bearing the fruit of the Spirit. Thank you for your powerful work in the life of Saul. Help us to see a similar work done in us as we look at your word this morning. We give thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, what I want you to see this morning is the unavoidable truth that when we rightly see God, it it always makes us humble. Always makes us humble. So if you're able, please stand for the reading of God's word. We're going to begin with verse 1 and read to verse 19. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus. So that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, but rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus, and for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying, and he has seen a vision, in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, have I, 
I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. This is God's word. You may be seated. Okay, we're going to work our way back through this text. And the first two verses, they remind us of Saul's zeal and authority and, and the great threat that he was to believers. Again, Saul, is a, he's a brilliant young man raised in Tarsus, highly educated, immersed in Greek culture. He's a Roman citizen, evidently because of uh, some services father or, or grandfather gave to the city. And so he already has the Gentile name of Paul. But at this time, he goes by his Jewish name, named after King Saul. And on his way to becoming a Pharisee of Pharisees, taught by the leading Pharisee of the time. And to do so, to be a Pharisee of Pharisees, he, he spent a lot of time in Jerusalem and at the temple And so we can speculate a lot of things. All that time in Jerusalem, uh, likely there during Jesus' earthly ministry. You know, some even wonder, is he the rich young ruler? Is he some of these characters that we read about that challenge Jesus and ask questions of him? Could it be him or was he there? And then in Acts 5, he, he may have even been present at this time, when the religious leaders, if you remember, they want to kill the apostles. They're so enraged, they want to kill them. And then in chapters 7 and 8, it, we definitely know it's Saul who oversaw and approved of Stephen's murder. This was the beginning of what he thought was a defense of Judaism as he persecuted the church. So now at the beginning of chapter 9... Luke describes Saul as someone to be feared, like a powerful, wild animal, breathing threats, snorting like a wild beast that's ready to charge and kill. He has murder on his mind, and he goes to the high priest to get their approval, to gain authority, to take this 140-mile journey to Damascus in order to search all the synagogues there and drag back any Christians that he finds to be executed. And the reference, men and women, shows his lack of mercy. Not just men, not just apostles, but anyone who follows the way needs to be eliminated. So Saul's this terrible villain. And this isn't the beginning of his killing. He already has this reputation dragging men and women out of their homes, out of the synagogues, and now the threat travels up to Damascus. Look at verses 
3 through 6. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. So he's on the verge. He's on the verge of entering Damascus. And let's keep in mind that Saul thinks he's doing God's work. Keep that in mind. He thinks he's doing God's work. In our minds, he's the villain. In his mind, he wants to serve God. He wants to protect the people of God from what he views as a, as a cult that's going to lead people astray. And here we are in our sensitive 21st century culture. It's so hard for us to comprehend murderous actions among people who claim to follow God. But look at all of church history. It's, it's filled with this mindset of various, a, a, a very serious approach. You, you, know, you can appreciate it on, on one level. So serious about heresy. So serious about heretics. They're going to lead people to hell. So caring about people's eternal damnation, their, their souls... Um, Caring so much that you're going to go to this extreme. You're going to eliminate what might lead thousands of people to hell. And so what we see in the text is this. Uh, he's, he's, he's on his way. He thinks he's working for God. And what we see is the sudden intervention on God's part. In the midst of his journey, as he uh, approaches Damascus, suddenly... A light shines from heaven so bright that he's blinded and he falls to the ground. And not only a light, but from the sky he also hears a voice that calls him by name, repeating his name, which is serious business. Now, if you hear a voice from the sky repeating your name, chances are it's God. And I'm sure that he didn't doubt for a second that it was God. The one who he thought that he was serving. And clearly when God says, why are you persecuting me? He had to be, he had to be so shocked at the realization that I'm not on God's side. He knows this is deity. And yet he, he asks more specifically, Lord, who are you? And the answer had to be devastating. Absolutely devastating because not only is he, he realizing he's in opposition to God, but more specifically, this deity is Jesus. And he thinks, not only is Jesus not dead, but he's speaking to me. Not only is he speaking to me, but he's speaking to me from the sky. Not only is he not just a man, he's God. And he's taking it personally. Because not only have I been persecuting his people, he's telling me that I'm persecuting him. That I'm, I'm shamefully treating the God that I thought I was following and serving. But clearly, I don't even know him. 
He's a Pharisee of Pharisees. He's dedicated his life to following God. And he has to have this shocking realization. I don't even know him. Saul was driving down the road without any warning. He's T-boned. Utterly caught off guard. Completely shocked. Stopped in his tracks. Both physically and mentally. It's hard to comprehend such a jarring experience as this. Jesus continues to speak in verse 6. Saying, but rise and enter the city and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless. Hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground and although his eyes were opened he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus and... For three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Saul had a plan. But Jesus overruled it. Saul was headed to the synagogues to search for Christians. But Jesus tells him to get up, go into the city, and wait. Scrap that plan. It's over. There's a new plan. And you're going to wait. And of course, God is purposeful in all that he does. So the, so the waiting here is kind of interesting, isn't it? Why does he have Saul wait? Waiting tends to intensify the situation. Like one of those times when a, when a mom might normally discipline her children on the spot. But this one is so serious. You've heard it. You've said it, moms. Go to your room and wait till your father gets home. And the waiting itself is a form of punishment. Because as a kid, you just want to get it over with. It adds to the seriousness of the situation because it gives us time to really consider what we've done. The added time drives the lesson home in a deep, and powerful way. Is this what God is doing? Having Saul wait? Or is it mercy? Has this been such a jarring, shocking experience that Saul needs to, to settle down so he can better hear and take in what God would have him to do? And certainly it's no mere coincidence that he waits for three days. It's like Jonah. In the belly of the great fish. The one who is running from God. Opposed to God. Is captured by God. And taken to the place that God would have him go. Three days in the fish. Three days in the place of the dead. And salvation belongs to the Lord. It's such a significant event in Saul's life. That it's pictured as a death and resurrection. And spiritually speaking, this is exactly what this is. He's struck dead. The old man is dead and gone. And God is raising a new man for his wonderful and good purposes. And not only is this a, a spiritual reality, but it's a physical reality too. This, this can't be dismissed and explained away by someone saying... One of his companions traveling on the road. You know, I did see Saul pick some of those mushrooms up along the way. No, the light and the sound were objectively real. 
and witnessed by the men traveling with him. And verses 8 and 9 are devastating. Do your best to identify. Do your best to put yourself in Saul's shoes. Identify with him at this point. You are so certain, so zealous in your service to God that you were willing to travel for days. You thought Jesus was dead and buried somewhere, but clearly he's alive. And not only is he alive, but he's God and he's speaking to you from the sky. Instead of serving God, you realize you've been opposing God. You were so proud, so proud. And now you realize you were as wrong as anyone could possibly be. Feel that sense of dread. Feel that, that fluttering sensation in your gut. This had to completely undo him. And not only is there this internal sense of dread where your pride is, is shattered, but you're physically blind as well. What does the realization of his blindness do to him? He doesn't know that he's going to be healed. From his perspective, he's lost everything. I mean, yes, the Lord tells him in a vision a little bit, but initially he doesn't know. And as he waits, this, this feeling is intensified. So no wonder he didn't eat or drink. The mind and the realization of an injury can really intensify the situation, can't it? Okay, again, if you're a parent, you probably know a certain phenomenon that occurs when your child falls on the street and scrapes their knee. I've witnessed this many times. Seeing the child's face and the initial look that you read is, well, that hurt a little. But then they pull up their pant leg and look at their knee and they see this little trickle of blood and then the face contorts and, oh, I'm dying. An injury is one thing, but the realization of an injury does something to us. And as parents, we get this. This is why you, okay, young parents, this is, here's a tip for you. Um, learn not to show any expression of concern when your child falls. Just get them up and get them going. Don't let them look, and they'll be fine. I know it seems cruel, but it's for their best. So no expression. Distract them. Right? Distract them by getting them playing again. So, there's no distraction for Saul. What kind of fear was going on inside of him as he realized he wasn't just stunned, but he couldn't see. That sensation, that sight was not returning. Verses 8 and 9 are devastating because he gets up, his eyes are open, but his sight isn't returning. This powerful, zealous, intelligent, confident man is undone. He's humbled at every level. Not only is he realizing how wrong he was, but now he needs to be, he needs to be led like a helpless child. 
held by the hand and guided into a place where he's going to wait, not knowing if this is some new normal for him. Instead of, instead of leading, he's being led. He doesn't know that he'll be healed initially. He doesn't know if God will be merciful. He certainly doesn't know the glorious mission to come. He's completely in the dark. And for three days, he doesn't eat or drink. So is he, is he fasting? Is he begging God for mercy? Is he, is he so devastated that he just can't eat? If this were you, how would you describe the feelings? Dread, fear, anxiety about the future. You know those feelings about certain things. This is how Saul must have been feeling, completely humbled. You were at the very top, and now you've been brought low, both in your thinking and in the physical disability that makes you dependent upon others. Once you were strong, but now you feel utterly weak and helpless. This is where God has brought him. And there's a spiritual correlation here, isn't there? Because we don't add to our salvation. It's not God taking our level of goodness and improving us to a greater goodness. No, we're stopped in our tracks and we have nothing to add. We're completely helpless and at the mercy of a gracious God. It's like the prodigal son, isn't it? It's, he, he's so arrogant so confident, demanding his inheritance, leaving home, big spender, living high on the hog until he's brought low and the money is gone. And instead of living high on the hog, he's looking for their leftovers. He comes to the utter and complete end of himself, absolutely humbled. And even his thought of returning in the role of a servant is dismissed. There's nothing he can add. It's 100% the love and grace of the Father embracing him as his son. This is Saul. This is Saul. The realization of being wrong, completely humbled. No confidence in himself. No ability to even guide himself or offer his services. He needs to be healed. He needs to be forgiven. He needs to see God. And spiritually speaking, if you've been converted to Christ, this is you. There's a realization of guilt that you're not really on God's side after all. In fact, you were persecuting him by committing crimes against him, crimes called sin. And he had every right to stop you in your tracks and knock you to the ground and give you what you deserve. Oh, when we are converted, we recognize our sin, our guilt, and we're completely at the mercy of God. We have no defense, no argument against him. Saul was blind before he was blinded. Spiritually blind in that he did not see Jesus. In fact, 
He describes this in 2 Corinthians 4, saying, The God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Saul thought Jesus was a hoax, that he was dead and buried away somewhere. He was blind to the truth. He thought he knew the glory of God, but he didn't because the glory of God is seen in the risen Christ. Many people today think they know the glory of God, maybe in the Torah, which is God's word, but they miss the point, the point that the Torah points to Jesus. People think they have the glory of God in Islam or in a variety of world religions that are simply the blinding of Satan to the truth. They think they have it in false prophets like Joseph Smith and Brigham Young and Charles Taze Russell, and Satan has blinded them. Or, or everything is God. I'm God. The glory of the planet is God. There is no God. And they're blinded. They're blinded, and one day God will confront them and justly judge them or graciously heal them. Saul's conversion is an illustration of the spiritual realities in every conversion. Apparently, this is what he thought too. Otherwise, he wouldn't have described it this way in 2 Corinthians. That our minds are blinded, and then God speaks and shines a light so that our hearts are changed and we encounter Jesus. God is able to stop any of us in our wrong pursuits and shine a light of truth on us and speak to us and cause us to realize that Jesus is God and that he is risen from the dead. Your experience, it, it may not be dramatic like this, but spiritually speaking, this is what happens to every believer. We're humbled. We're humbled to the point of complete inability. And we recognize Jesus as the only Savior. We realize our sin and we need forgiveness. If you're a Christian, this is you. And this theme of humility continues in another character, Ananias. Look at verse 10. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen a, in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Saul's conversion tells us that we are not saved by our works, by our intellect, by our zeal in doing what we think is right. No, Saul's conversion shows us that God 
saved us while we were his enemies. His conversion shows us that if we thought we were looking for God, we really weren't. We were actually opposed to him. His conversion shows us that Satan blinds the minds of unbelievers. And we don't find God, but God comes to us and confronts us with himself. He speaks as he spoke at creation, saying, let there be light. And what he commands comes into being. He's the one who gives us faith, giving us eyes to see his glory in Jesus. God has authority over all his enemies. He humbles them. And he has mercy on whom he has mercy. And with Ananias, we also see God's authority. He is forever our master. And once again, we see that our only right response to God is, is a humble one. Here's the main principle from our text that I want you to see. Seeing God, seeing God will always make us humble. Seeing God will always, always, always make us humble. If you're arrogant and prideful and feel superior to people, then the question that should come to mind is, do I really see God? Think of Ananias. His experience, yeah, his experience it's an unusual one, isn't it? Direct communication through a vision. It's not, not the norm for us today. Yes, God guides us, but his more direct communication to us is now through his word, which is complete and perfect. So don't expect God to speak to you in this way. But know that God speaks to you. He commands you. And our response needs to be humble like that of Ananias. It's a humble response. God calls him by name and Ananias replies. Uh, his reply should remind us of a lot of replies in scripture. His reply is what? Here I am, Lord. It's the same humble ready to obey reply that we hear from Abraham, Jacob, Moses, Samuel, Isaiah. Here I am. Here I am. You're Lord. You're the master. I'm your obedient servant. What does humility look like? It recognizes that we are servants to a master. God's word is is final. So if he commands us to go, then we go. But notice that God also hears Ananias' concern. It's a good concern, isn't it? Ananias felt free to bring his anxieties to the Lord, and so should we. First Peter tells us, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him Because he cares for you. What a gracious God. He knows perfectly what we should do, when we should do, how we should do. And yet, he still listens to us. He stoops and is gracious and hears our concerns. Tells us to cast them on him. Our right position before God is to be humble. But God... He knows our frame. 
He knows our weakness. He invites us to cast all our concerns, all our anxieties on him because truly he cares for us. So even though God is high and holy, transcendent, and we are mere creatures, he condescends. He stoops to listen to us because God is relational. Relational to the point of God the Son taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, humbling himself, and becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. How incredible that our God would go to such extremes to love us. Such extremes. And this thought ought to humble us. Ananias, he had good reasons to be anxious. Saul was an evil killer. And he had permission and authority to go and do so. And God not only commands Ananias to go, but he assures him that he's Saul's authority now. Now Saul is an instrument in God's hand. And God is going to take the one who, who um, created such great suffering and anxiety and teach him his good purposes in his own suffering. So bring your anxieties to God. He cares for you. He knows your situation. He has a plan and he is sovereign over every detail. He's in control and so we can go. We can go in his name. This is the answer to Ananias. And it's the answer given to us as well. God is, he is so much bigger than our problems. He knows all things and he cares for you. Verse 17. So Ananias departed and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. Seeing God always makes us humble. And sometimes we're tempted to think, in situations like this, but God, are you just going to, Forgive him? Look at all the evil that he's done. You're just going to forgive him? It wasn't Ananias' place to say such things. Why? Because, well, that's God's business, isn't it? But not only does he go to Saul, he ministers to him. He ministers to him. He shows compassion to the person who not only killed Christians, but probably people that Ananias knew, brothers and sisters. Don't miss how remarkable it is that Ananias goes and lays hands on this killer and says, brother. Brother. What does humility look like? Yes, it looks like obedience to God's command knowing that he is the master and we are his servants. But it also looks like Jesus. Jesus himself. It looks like grace and forgiveness. Does Ananias have to be kind and compassionate? God just told him to go and lay hands on him and restore his sight. 
But in his going, he obviously lets go of any perceived right to hold a grudge that, you know, it's not ultimately about himself, but it's about God. It's so much like Jesus, isn't it? What he does here. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Satan has blinded their minds. Forgive them. Instead of making it about himself and his own experiences or suffering, Ananias humbly recognizes that Jesus is the one who was ultimately being persecuted by this man. And if he wants to forgive him and change him and use him for his glory, then what possible complaint could Ananias have? How about you? Are you making that offense about you? Or do you see that the ultimate offense is against God? Do you believe that, do you believe that God sees? That he sees the situation? That he's just? That he'll deal with that person as he sees fit? And what about your offense? Are you somehow more deserving of God's forgiveness? Am I? Do we think of ourselves as not as bad as that person or easier to love? Yes. As soon as we touch on forgiveness, I know all the things going through your mind and the complications with forgiveness. And yes, what about this? And Forgiveness is complicated, isn't it? A person should repent. They should ask for forgiveness. Trust is broken and in some cases shouldn't be restored. People can take advantage of you and and use your faith to manipulate you. So yes, I get it. It's It's not simple. But again, the question is, do you see God? Do you see his love for you and that you don't deserve it? Do you see your sin as deserving of hell? As an infinitely greater offense than anyone could have ever done to you? Do you see that God is sovereign over all? That he sees not only that person's actions, but the intent of their heart? Do you see that he is an absolutely perfect judge? That nothing will be swept under the carpet And he'll do what is right. Do you see that he is a loving father who knows how to discipline his own? Do you see God? Or are there scales over your eyes? Seeing God will always make us humble. And in humility we can never respond with, But God, you don't understand. But God, he'll get away with it. But God... He doesn't deserve it. No, in humility, we trust that God sees, he understands, he will deal with it. And if we're a part of any process of confrontation or, or discipline, it's with a desire for healing and forgiveness. Do you see God? If you do, it will always make you humble. God, in his grace, revealed himself to Saul and completely humbled him. 
and in rightly seeing God. Ananias didn't make it about himself, but humbly trusted God and responded in a Jesus-like way. If you're a Christian, then you've been humbled. And this means that you must and you will walk in humility. Let's pray. Almighty God, deep within our hearts, we know that you alone give us the satisfaction for which we thirst. That we are created to know and be in relationship with you. And that seeing Jesus as our master and savior is only because you have graciously confronted us. Us. We are changed. Help us to see, help us to understand that this change involves this change involves a humbling. To be humbled before you, submitting to your will and your calling in our lives. And that this calling will always involve a humility toward one another. Give us the mind of Christ, we pray. Give us the mind of Christ. And may you be glorified in your church as we forgive and serve with your glory as our goal and our desire. Thank you for this transforming grace, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.